Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is on page 573 in the Pew Bibles. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. It's my fault, you guys. I didn't do a mic check beforehand. Hello, good morning. Can you hear me? Am I pumping out of the speakers? I know most of you. Most of you know me. If you're visiting with us this morning, hello. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. Love to meet you after service. If you want to meet, if you want to know anything more about our church, I can answer questions. I can introduce you to our other pastors. This morning, we'll be looking at the title uh, for Jesus from Isaiah 9, Everlasting Father. It's debatably the most confusing title for Christ among the four titles for him in Isaiah 9, but it's incredibly encouraging when understood. Uh, I have really needed it this week and lately, and I'm going to share more about that in a moment. Uh, It seems confusing, in my opinion, because it seems like a confusion of the Trinity. We Orthodox Christians, we believe in the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to call the Son the Father is potentially confusing. But hopefully, just to put you at ease and give you an appetizer, Father here in Isaiah 9 is is not an aspect of Christ's identity within the Godhead, uh, but it's a title that indicates his role, his tasks that he will do as he shows Israel and Gentiles who he is and therefore who God is. So before we dive in, join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for another day, another gathering with your people. I thank you for the words of that last song. Lord, I do feel often unfaithful and empty-handed. 
Um, but that's how you want us to approach you, acknowledging that we are unfaithful and we approach your throne with empty hands. And so we come to you again this morning through faith in Christ, praising you for, for sending him to be born as a, as a child, the humility that took, Lord Jesus. We, we praise you for that, for leaving your throne and becoming a human, becoming a servant, coming to live perfectly and to die in our place. We know you rose from the dead, you ascended, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father even now. And we praise you, pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit in us, uh, bless us with true and spiritual worship this morning. Pray, Lord, that you'd use me to speak your word faithfully and truly to your people and even those here who aren't yet your people. We love you and praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I'm going to start this morning a little bit unique. You know, it's not unlike me to bear my heart, but instead of a story that's going to draw you in and kind of illustrate where we're going or the problem, I'm just going to go straight to my heart. I have my Kleenexes ready. Bear with me this morning, please. I've been really, really sad lately. The last four weeks, I've been like in, a, in, a, in one of the worst depressions of my life, and that's not unknown for me. I've struggled with depression on and off for my whole life. Most of you know me, the PLI guys. My nickname was the Golden Retriever, remember, Ryan? I'm usually this happy all the time, but when I'm down, I'm really down. And the last four weeks has been really rough, and I can't figure it out. I've been really, really down. It's one of the saddest I've ever been. And, and you're my, I know you guys, I know you love me, and you men in here, you're fixers, you want to fix it, so you're already trying to diagnose me. Well, I wonder what it is. So let me head you off at the pass. <clears throat> my marriage is great. Audrey and I are super in love. We love spending time together. We haven't been in a big fight. We just celebrated 10 years of marriage a few months ago, I've said, and she texted me yesterday and said, I just realized 11 years ago today you proposed to me. It was really a special day. My kids are great. They're not rebelling. They just spill some milk here and there, and they act like a six-year-old and a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh, my job is great here at the church. I pinch myself every day that I get to do what I love for work. I have never worked a day yet in pastoral ministry because I love it. I want to do it. I'm super excited that Josh Breffel just became one of my pastors. He, he's one of my best friends, and today, now he's one of my pastors. He's one of the shepherds of my soul, and not just for Josh, but I'm excited to continue to work with this team, even in this bittersweet season of Dan stepping down soon. I don't have any unconfessed or hidden sin that is causing my bones to waste away, as David says in the Psalms. I don't know what's wrong. And I've been desperately waiting for this to go away for four weeks, or at least to figure out why I'm feeling this way. I want some sort of diagnosis so I can work towards feeling better. But in God's providence, amidst this Advent season, I have been specifically and uniquely waiting for Christ's return. I know as, as Christians, we all at times long for, for Christ to come back. We believe that as Christians, don't we? He is coming. We're in between the first and the second Advent. But in the last four weeks, you guys, and it sounds super spiritual, and don't think that I'm super spiritual. A lot of it is just escapism, and I'm, I'm so soft. I, it's hard to handle these sad feelings. But I've been saying, Jesus, 
Won't you come back? Come on. It's been 2,000 years. I know I've read Peter. I know for you that's only two days. But for us, it's been 2,000 years. For me, it's been 36. And a lot of those have been hard. So can you just come back? But instead of really relying on God these last four weeks, that's hard to say as one of your pastors, do you know what rises in my heart to rely on for goodness and for protection amidst my waiting? Some good, old-fashioned American consumerism. I want to buy something new. For the last four weeks, I can't stop thinking about buying a new hockey stick. And I'm dead serious. When I feel sad and dark, I don't know what's wrong with this stinking heart and mind sometimes, but I just want to buy something new. And you guys know, maybe if you've heard a couple sermons of mine, I love hockey, I play hockey a lot. I'm not growing anymore, so I'm not outgrowing my skates or my gloves or my elbow pads, but the the main thing a hockey player needs is a new stick once in a while. And if it's not a new hockey stick, it's some new technology, even a new Christian book, even a new Bible, which I can't because I just got a new one to celebrate becoming a pastor. Don't ask me how much I spent on it. I'm thinking some new thing will make me feel better as I wait. Some thing will give me goodness and protect me and give me rest and empower my waiting. Yeah, sure. Probably for a day or two. But it won't ever lastingly fill my heart and empower my waiting. Can anyone relate? Thank you. (laughs) But maybe it's not new things that you go to to empower your waiting. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's not specifically relationships, but your hope is in a person. Maybe the relationships you hope in is your spouse or a parent or your pastors. Or maybe if it's other people, maybe it's the president. We're coming up into 2024. The new president will enable us to rest and to have joy and to empower our waiting. Maybe it's working hard. To make more money, that extra money in your savings account is where you'll find loving protection amidst the anguish of life. Or is it knowledge? I struggle not to go to this one. I love learning. I love studying. But, but we think that our studying and our learning and our expertise will be the thing that empowers our waiting. None of those things are sinful in and of themselves. But none of them will ultimately pro- provide us with the goodness and protection that only Christ can offer us and that only Christ empowers by his spirit. And even if they momentarily provide those things, none of them are everlasting. Not one. They will all fail us eventually. I hope you hear this morning that treasuring Jesus as our everlasting father empowers our waiting in the midst of the anguish of life. And... I've said this before, but every, every sermon that we preach, that preachers preach, is first a sermon to themselves, but selfishly, friends, this, this sermon is for me. This, this message is for me. I need to treasure Jesus as my everlasting Father. That will empower my waiting in the midst of the anguish I'm feeling right now. The structure this morning, very simple. We're going to look at everlasting, we're going to look at Father, and then we'll land the plane by looking at everlasting Father together. 
We've seen in the last two weeks how treasuring Jesus as our wonderful counselor and then mighty God empowers our waiting in the midst of the anguish of life. We've heard from Josh and Jake, and they've given us helpful context about what's going on in the book of Isaiah so far. I'll just briefly remind you, in in Isaiah's time, the descendants of Abraham and many, many members of the dynasty of David no longer trusted in the promises of God. Instead, they aligned themselves with the promises and the fears of this false world. The question forced upon Judah by the threat of the Assyrians was one of trust. In what will God's people trust for salvation? What will empower them as they wait in human strategies of self-rescue or in prophetic promises of divine grace? Amidst the warning of coming judgment through Assyria, though, there is a promise of the coming hope of the Messiah. He would be a child born. He would be a son given, and he would be called Everlasting Father. So let's first look at Everlasting. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah says that this child that would be born would be everlasting. So what does that mean? Well, let's not overthink it. It means he's everlasting. He's eternal, which is an attribute of God alone. Even though paradoxically he'll be born, that isn't the beginning of his existence. Jesus Christ is everlasting. He's eternal. It's an attribute of God. We could use this syllogism. If you don't know what that means, I'm going to define it for you. It should be up there. It's an instance of a form of reasoning in which a conclusion is drawn, whether validly or not, from two given or assumed propositions, each of which shares a term with the conclusion and shares a common middle term not present in the conclusion. Yeah, there's the example. Here's a good syllogism. You probably heard these before. You didn't know this word. I'm glad to teach you a new word. All dogs are animals, all animals have four legs, therefore all dogs have four legs. Our syllogism for Jesus this morning is this, since God is everlasting and Jesus is everlasting, therefore Jesus is God. He has always existed because he is God. We've talked about this a lot in our series through Luke. The gospel accounts show Jesus to be the divine God-man Messiah. And we've said it before, I'll say it again, there is no good news apart from the everlasting nature of Jesus Christ. If he had a beginning or he has an end, then he's merely a man and therefore he's unable to save sinners because he would have had a sin nature. He would have been a part of creation, a son of Adam, but he's not a son of Adam. He's the son of God. He would have been a tainted lamb if he were only a man. And not a spotless one, but he was and is not tainted. He is the spotless lamb. He is the alpha and the omega who is and who was and who is to come. He's the almighty. My favorite example of Jesus teaching about his eternality and his divinity is in John chapter 8. But before we look at that, let me give you some important context from Exodus chapter 3. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he tells Moses, I'm going to send you to Israel and you're going to, you're going to be the one I use to get Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God said, say this to the people of Israel, 
I am has sent me to you. That's a famous passage many of you have heard. Many of you probably know the connection in John chapter 8, but it's worth looking at again and praising God for. And if, if you're one of the few people in here who hasn't seen this connection, I'm so nerdily excited and honored to share this connection with you. So in John 8, it's a big a lot of verses, I'm not going to read them all, but Jesus is teaching and arguing with the Pharisees. He's talking about his father, God, and their father, the devil. He tells them they are not of God. They are of their sons, their father, the devil. And they respond by calling Jesus' names. They say, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? And then he tells them that anyone who keeps his word won't die. And the Pharisees say, wait, you think you're better than Abraham? and the other prophets who died? And Jesus responds in verses 56 through 59, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Mic drop, that's right. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The first time someone showed that connection to me was amazing. I thought about that all day, every day for seven days. The worship that rose in my heart, the realization that the Bible is one story, one connected story that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ was amazing. In this scene, Jesus is equating himself with Yahweh with God himself and his self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus says, I am. I am Yahweh. And if it weren't true, it would be blasphemy. The Pharisees don't think it's true. And the Old Testament law says if you were guilty of blasphemy, you should be stoned to death. That's why they pick up stones. They're like, you just committed blasphemy. You just said you're Yahweh. We're going to stone you to death. They don't do it, obviously. Jesus gives up his life when he wants to, which is on the cross and not by stones. The whole Bible testifies, yes, to the humanity of the Messiah, the humanity of Jesus Christ, but also clearly to his everlasting nature, his deity. Jake read it for us last week, but I want to read it again. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Jesus, referring to Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We could go to many other verses to see more evidence of Jesus' divinity and therefore deduce his everlasting eternal existence, but we don't need to. The point is, Jesus Christ is everlasting. And the way that we're considering it this morning isn't only that he's everlasting in general, but that he's our everlasting father. So now we will look at this idea of him being a father. As I said at the beginning, uh, this is a title that describes actions and dispositions of Jesus and not his identity within the Godhead. Therefore, this is not a confusion of the Trinity Isaiah is not waxing eloquent on the finer points of Trinitarian theology. Although, unfortunately, I would tell you as one of your pastors, there is a cult 
within Christianity called Oneness Pentecostalism, which denies the Trinity. They use this text, Isaiah 9-6, to argue that there's, there's only one God who does not exist in three persons, but is one person who operates in different modes. As if one person has three different masks. Sometimes God wears his father mask, sometimes he wears his son mask, and sometimes he wears his spirit mask. This is the ancient heresy of modalism. It's been denied as orthodox since the third century. And it's not only ancient, American famous T.D. Jakes is a oneness Pentecostal, denies the Trinity. So what does it mean then that Christ is father? Well, lots, maybe. More, more than my fallible mind maybe can come up with and maybe more than others have thought before me. Uh, no sermon can claim to be exhaustive. I'm not claiming this to be exhaustive, but here are some of my thoughts or those who have thought them before me. But I should say before we consider what this means that even though Jesus is God, but he is not the Father, he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one in nature. They have the same nature. A definition of the Trinity is this. There's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we see in John 14, Philip asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And he's speaking of him and the other disciples. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So even though Jesus is not the Father, he shows us who God the Father is. So with that said, I want to highlight five ways that Jesus is a father to his people. I'm not going to tell you all of them now. If you're a note taker, you can just write them as we go. The first way that Jesus is a father to his people is that he is a benevolent protector. Benevolent means kind, gracious, good, generous, having a disposition to do good. I don't think I need to define protector, one who protects As a father is supposed to be the protector of his family, so Christ is a protector of his people. The picture is the stronger protecting the weaker. Benevolent protector was also to be the role of the king of Israel. The king of Israel was to be the benevolent protector of his people. So Jesus Christ is the good and gracious father king, the protector of his people. I know when it comes to our experience of our earthly fathers, some of us have had great fathers, some of us horrible, some in between. For those of you that have had horrible earthly fathers, I've heard that it's hard not to view our heavenly father without bias. I just want to encourage you to continue to pray and to seek not to let your view of the heavenly father in light of your painful experience of your earthly father. I know it's hard, but keep praying. But our worldview declares that no matter the goodness or the badness of our earthly fathers, they were all sinners. Every single one of our fathers was a sinner. He fell short of the glory of God. In some way, shape, or form, every 
earthly father has fallen short of being a perfect, benevolent protector to his family. And even for those fathers who were and are amazing, who we felt like did an almost perfect job, they aren't everlasting. They have or will cease to be our benevolent protectors, but not Jesus. He is the only one who is perfectly and eternally an everlasting father to us. And because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he, is, he has enabled us to be adopted by the Father of the Trinity, the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. Through Christ, we can be adopted and experience God as Father. Brothers and sisters, no matter your experience with your earthly fathers, through Christ's work, you get to experience the perfect and everlasting Father. A second way Christ is Father to his people is in his representation of them. He is our representative. In covenant theology, we call this federal headship. It means that God deals with his people through covenants whereby they are represented to God by someone else. It's when one person acts on behalf of another person or a group of people. There's a similar concept in our legal system we could illustrate it with called the power of attorney. When a written authorization allows one to represent another person for some legal matter. Biblically, this is summarized in two Adams. The first Adam that many of us think of in the Garden of Eden, who is all of fallen humanity's federal head under the covenant of works. In Adam, he sinned and God imputed Adam's sin to all humanity. He imputed it to all humanity. But also, we're born with a sin nature. So we never say, well, that doesn't seem fair. We just wake up and look at our hearts and ourselves, and we know that we're sinners. But the second Adam, there's another one, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the federal head of all believers under the covenant of grace. He is our representative if we have believed in him. So Jesus, in this sense, is our fatherly representative. He's our federal head. We see this clearly in Romans 5, 12 through 21. I'm not going to go there. That's for you to study later today. If all this is new to you, I'm using some language you're unfamiliar with. I really encourage you to read Romans 5, 12 through 21 later this afternoon. There's a shorter one though we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. It says this, for as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That was 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. By generation, what I mean by that is by natural birth, every human is a son of Adam. He's our federal head. But by regeneration, every believer is, as it were, a son of Jesus. I've heard it illustrated like this. Humanity can have one of two bus drivers. Either Adam is your bus driver or Jesus is your bus driver. We're all born on Adam's bus. And if we stay on it, we will never experience the joys of being a part of God's kingdom and its destination is eternity separated from God and under his wrath. But through being born again, placing faith in, in Jesus Christ, we get on his bus and we enjoy our citizenship in heaven for all eternity, its destination being heaven and the joys therein. One of my favorite songs of all time is a song called This My Soul 
by the band The Grey Havens. If you haven't heard it, another recommendation. I've, I've noticed I've done that a lot. I didn't know I liked music as much as I do. This is the kind of song, though, that I'm like screaming when I'm alone in my car. I was tempted to read you all the lyrics. I won't do that. We would get bogged down, but let me just quickly summarize it for you. It, it beautifully and poetically describes this idea of representation or federal headship. In the first two stanzas, you hear ba- basically creation in the fall. God made the world. He made Adam and Eve. They're made in his image, reflecting all beauty and goodness and truth but they lower their gaze as they listened to the face of low desires. So the next stanza talks, they, they ate the fruit, and so God kicks them out of the garden. He puts swords to block their way. He puts a curse on Adam and Eve and all of mankind. Even as he's doing that, though, he speaks this promise, which you're all familiar with this church, Genesis 3.15, that one day God would, would send a, 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 a man born of the woman to be a snake crusher, crush the head of the serpent, Nothing, but nothing man could do would save themselves. And so the chorus um, really makes you feel this. It starts by saying, this my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man, referring to Adam, what this man has done, it all extends to you. So you just feel the weight. And then the third stanza, it's climaxing. Then the perfect son of man, he took the place the voice had planned since the garden and before. He took the swords and cursed the grave. There's nothing more to separate us from the promise, the words of the living hope. And then the chorus still climaxing. This, what what Christ has done, this, my soul, you were born, you were born into. What this man has done, it all extends to you. Let the words shake on down along your spine and ring out true that you might find new life. Brothers and sisters, what Christ has done all extends to us. He is our representative. He's our federal head. A third way Christ is our father is that he's the founder of our faith. He's the founder of Christianity. Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection, his ascension, all inaugurated the way of salvation and the following him as Lord and Savior. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Yes, Christianity was in the mind of God from before time eternal, but it was founded in time through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If we call the men who found this country the founding fathers, if we call Robert Oppenheimer the founder of the atomic bomb, Henry Ford the, 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 found, the father, sorry, the father of the American car industry, then we can call Jesus the father of Christianity. And therefore, he's the founder of our faith. A fourth way Jesus is our father is that he is our life giver. As an earthly father is an irreplaceable piece of giving life to a child, so spiritually Christ is our life giver. John 5, 21 says, For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And then later, verse 26, For as the father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the son also to have life in himself later in john john 14 19 because i live you also will live if there's a christian it is because christ through the holy spirit has given that person life the fifth way christ is a father to us is that he is the father of the future age which obviously is related to his everlasting nature He will continue to be father-like to us in the new heavens and the new earth. Spurgeon says it like this, according to the old Jewish custom, the elder brother was, was the father of the family in the absence of the father. The firstborn took precedence of all and took upon him the father's position. So the Lord Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren, exercises to us a father's office. This is what we're waiting for in between the advents, isn't it? The new heavens and the new earth, the promise when all tears will be wiped from our eyes, no more badness, no more sadness, no more pain, suffering to be with God. We're waiting like Israel for the coming of our Messiah. So there are the few of the ways that me or others before me think that Christ is a father to us. He's our benevolent protector, our representative or our federal head. He's the founder of our faith. He's our life giver, and he's the father of the future age. So Christ is everlasting, and he's a father. But the title we're considering has that together. He's the everlasting father. Let's consider them together as we finish up. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, it is because he has always been to us an everlasting father. That's what everlasting means. Remember, before time, for time eternal, this spans before and after our profession of faith in time. It's rooted in our election and predestination and continues after our glorification into eternity. Windsor Community Church, God loves you. If you're a Christian, it's because he chose you from before the foundation of the world and Christ has always been and will always be to you an everlasting father. Last week, Jake taught us many of the four G's. Hopefully you were here last week. If you weren't, you listened on the podcast or online. If not, I'm going to give you a quick refresher. These have been really helpful to me. I commend them to you. You should write them somewhere. You should memorize them. God is great, glorious, good, and gracious. And each of those has an impact on some struggle that each of us have in our lives. I'll remind you, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. Do you know how helpful that would be for all of us? For me, I have it written in the back of my Bible. Because I desire to be in control, I fear others, I look elsewhere for goodness and protection, and I always feel like I have to prove myself. But seeing God as these things is the antidote for all of those struggles I have in my heart. I want to double down, though, on the third one. As we consider Christ as our everlasting Father, the third one I said is God is good. Since Jesus has everlastingly been our benevolent protector, we don't have to look anywhere else. We shouldn't look anywhere else. While we wait for his second coming, amidst a potentially four-week depression, there's going to be anguish in life. There's going to be suffering, sadness, fear, anger, hate. 
but we can and we will endure because of who Christ is to us. Do you go to him as the everlasting father amidst the anguish of life? Will you join me in trying to do better at that? Wrought by the Holy Spirit in your hearts? Hockey sticks won't heal. They won't help. Savings accounts won't save us. Google won't grant grace. Hard work won't hem us in. Performance won't propitiate. Relationships won't reconcile us to God. Spouses won't ultimately solve, satisfy, or save. Intellect won't indebt God to me. And pastors won't prove to be permanent. Amidst the waiting, when you're tempted to look for goodness and satisfaction elsewhere, look to Jesus, your benevolent protector. When sin says you're condemned, remember your representative who has lived and died for you and imputed to you his righteousness. When you've lost your way, look to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of your faith. When sin says you're dead, praise Jesus as the one who gave you life and will give it to you again at the resurrection of the dead. When you feel hopeless, hope in his second coming. He is coming back someday, friends. Maybe in our lifetime, but maybe not. But I have hope that I'll be with him someday, one way or another, and so will you if you've put your faith in him. We've done that. If we've hoped in his second coming through our repentance and faith, he will for infinity be to us an everlasting father. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, King Jesus, for being to us an everlasting Father, for protecting us, for being our life giver, our representative, the founder of our faith, the father of the future age. We long to be with you and, and pray that you would help us, you'd help me uh, treasure you amidst the anguish of life. That we would really, that, that, that you would give this whole body the gift that you've given me uh, of being uniquely and specifically aware of my need for you. And how nothing will fill the hole in, in our hearts and my heart except for treasuring Jesus as these titles we see in Isaiah 9. We, we need you. We acknowledge that again this morning. Help us not try to fill the hole in our hearts with anything but you. We praise you. We acknowledge you are worthy of all of our lives and all of our praise. And pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our everlasting Father. Amen.